Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. This morning, morning again from my side. Um, let's uh, open our Bibles. If you have a Bible year to Second Thessalonians, if you um, use your phone or your or something like that, your smartphone, you're welcome to open that as well. Um, just so you have the text there and so you can check that I'm preaching what's in the text because that's important (laughs) because the authority doesn't come from me you shouldn't listen to me because I'm a pastor or because you like me hopefully there are at least some of you like me but uh, and that's good but but it that that doesn't mean that um, you should well that's not the reason why you should listen to me you should listen to me uh, preach the word because I'm preaching the word uh, and because it's God's word, and because God, uh, God's word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. God's word is inspired and true, and uh, the one thing that we can trust in this world, um, because it's the one thing that doesn't come from this world. You realize that every other book in the history of mankind has its origin in this world, but the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit is the only thing that comes from outside of creation. You know, and um, the reality is we, we don't see this world as it is. You know, it's not like we can look at the world, I always use this illustration, like a, like a fish tank and see what the world is like, you know, with the fish swimming in the fish tank and so on. Because we're the fish in the fish tank. <laughs> we're looking at the world from the inside. We don't see it as it is. The only way we can really see the world and ourselves as we really are is through God's word, which is the only external object of view of this world. Obviously, it comes through human beings. So in that sense, it's, it's sort of a mix of an external view from the Holy Spirit and an internal view from the people who wrote it. But they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and that's why it's important to us. Um, okay, so I want to just... We, we, we've been speaking... week before last, we started speaking about just praying with Paul and learning from Paul how to pray. And I just want to ask a little question that the Holy Spirit just sort of, as I was preparing, dropped in my heart and that, that actually quite convicted me. Um, and, um, you know, misery loves company, so I'm hoping it will convict you too. <laughs> then we can all repent and grow together. Um, the question is just, um, do, do you pray as if God really answers prayers. Do you pray as if God really answers prayers? Yes, no, sort of. Think about, think about it. If, if you prayed as if you really believe God answers prayers, how would you pray differently? Would you pray with more confidence? Would you pray with more joy? Would you pray with more urgency? I'm sure you would. I would, definitely. Um, so the, the question is, do you pray as if God really answers prayers? And, and I think Paul prayed like that. Paul prayed as if God really answered prayers. That's one of the things I've picked up, you know, as I've been studying Paul's prayers um, in, in the New Testament. He prayed as if 
prayer really made a difference. And if, as if prayer was really important. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that we can really learn from Paul. It's just that, that confidence that, that God really answers prayer. He really uses our prayers. Uh, our prayers are really meaningful. They're not, they're not just words in the wind. They're actually a big part of what God uses to let his kingdom come and his will be done in this broken world. And therefore, they're very, very significant. So we're saying we're we, 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 we learning to pray with Paul because um, Paul was the greatest theologian and church planter probably of all time. And the interesting thing is many of his churches flourished while he was in prison. He spent massive stretches in prison. And I, and I think he sort of approached it as study leave and, and prayer leave, you know, a sabbatical, you know, so that he can study and pray. And, and in those times, you know, he, all that he could do for his churches was pray for them and write letters to them. And he did, and, and it had a massive impact, a massive, massive impact uh, on them. And, you know, just imagine being able to pray with Paul. Imagine, you know, being Timothy or Silas or one of those dudes, and, and you're in a prayer session with Paul. And, and, and you're not only seeing him pray, hearing him pray, but praying with him, experiencing it. Uh, you know, that, that must be all, been awesome. But, I mean, to some extent we can learn that because at least some of Paul's prayers are captured in the New Testament and we can learn from them. Like this one we, we, we're looking at in Second Thessalonians 1. And his, his prayer proper only starts in verse 11. Let me, let me actually read that. I'm going to put it up on the screen as well. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. We ought always to give thanks for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and, your, and, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. And we spoke about that last time. And we said, um, if you want to pray with Paul, we've we got to pray with thankfulness. We've got to pray from a perspective of thankfulness and in a way that values the internal life above the external life, the priority of the internal life. Um, so we spoke about that last time. And, and this time we're going to speak about uh, mostly from verse 5 where it says, and, and what I want you to notice there is the, the focus is on God as a God of justice and judgment day. See if you can pick it up as, as, as we read it from verse 5. And this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back. Trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among 
all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. So Paul's prayer proper only starts in verse 11, you know. But he, he starts the prayer with, he says, with this in mind. With what? The previous verses. In fact, in the Greek, um, verse 3 to 10 is one sentence. Paul likes writing these long, you know, heavy Greek sentences. And, and that, verse 3 to, to 10, forms the framework of Paul's prayer. In other words, here's the thing. If we want to learn to pray like Paul, we must learn to think like Paul. Okay? We will never be able to pray like Paul unless we learn to think like Paul. And, and last time we, we spoke about the fact that, that where thankfulness fits in, in Paul's perspective uh, and in uh, Paul's heart and mind. And today we're going to talk about Judgment Day and how that fits in. Because he says, with this in mind, and he's just spoken about God is just and Judgment Day is coming. And he says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. Okay? In other words, when, when Paul prayed for people, he prayed with Judgment Day in mind. Have you ever thought about that? He prayed from a Judgment Day perspective. And, and here's what I want to share with you. If I can just sort of sum up what I want to share with you, it's this. It's, it's very simple. Um, the more we look forward to Judgment Day, the better we will pray. The more we look forward to Judgment Day, the better we will pray. If we can pray from a Judgment Day perspective, we'll pray so much better, just like Paul. We'll be able to pray like Paul. Okay. So, um, you know, so often we make the mistake of being too nearsighted and focusing on things that are too near and too, I almost want to say urgent, and, and, and missing the important things that are a bit further away. I mean, how many of you, uh, some of you might still be at school, but most of you, you know, have been through school already. Uh, but, but how many of you um, at school, your main focus was just to pass the tests? Okay? You just wanted to pass the exams, you know? Learning and growing and developing as a human being and, and was not really on your mind and, and, you know, your career was, you know, maybe the furthest thing from your mind. <laughs> you just wanted to get the marks. Okay? Many of us are like that. And, and here's the problem. I, I know there are some like really good students. You were like amazing and you're like, this is what I want to become and this is what I need to learn to become that. And, and we were all jealous of you and, and thought you were crazy at school. Uh, the rest of us, you know, we sort of just crammed and tried to pass the exams, you know, <laughs> as normal people. <laughs> I, I confess I was like that. I was, I was, um, a bit lazy and I, I sort of, I listened in class, but then I just crammed for the exams and tried to pass. And, and I'm, I'm actually sorry I did. I'm sorry I did, because there was a lot of what I could have learned that I didn't learn, that I missed out on, because my perspective was wrong. If you don't have a perspective that goes beyond the exams to your career, you're not going to receive the full benefit of your studies. Because you're not going to study to, to learn, you're going to study to pass. You're not going to study to grow, you're going to study to just, you know, 
get the right marks. And so often we do that as well. We have a short-term perspective. We only live for this life. But what Paul is saying is if we don't live with a judgment day perspective, we'll miss out on so much that this life has to offer. We won't live this life well, and we won't pray well, unless we have a judgment day perspective. Okay, so I'm just very quickly going to look um, at what judgment day is, why it's necessary, um, why it's just, and, and how it helps us to pray better. Okay, so what Judgment Day is. All religions, interestingly enough, believe in some form of Judgment Day. I mean, even even the Eastern religions that are so weird and very different from Christianity um, believe in some form of karma, which is a, is a form of, of judgment. Uh, even the, those religions that believe in, in reincarnation believe that, that you reincarnated, you know, in a, into a better life or a worse life depending on how you lived your previous life. Okay? And, and the sense of justice and judgment is in every world religion except modern, secular, atheistic, liberal religion. And, and, and you know, from, from many people, especially in the West, you hear something like, oh, I don't believe in a God that judges. I believe in a God that loves everyone. Have you heard that? I've heard that so many times. I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've, I've heard it. Um, but the Bible clearly says, and this text that we read clearly says that there is a judgment day. God is just. And that means that God condones nothing. Judgment day, what is judgment day? Judgment day is God's perfect delayed justice. For every human being at the end of time. Well, when I say the end of time, I mean the end of this age. Judgment Day is God's perfect delayed justice for every human being at the end of this age. And um, every every single human being will have to face it according to, to this text and according to the Bible. And and I say it's it's perfect justice because God condones nothing. I mean, if you look at other gods... You know, other than the God of the Bible, many of them do condone stuff. Many of them don't judge everything. I mean, the, the classic example is um, in, in um, popular culture, the, the sort of symbol of justice is, is the scales, right? The scales of justice. Okay? But that's not a biblical idea. That actually comes from Islam. In Islam, there's the scales of justice in which your good works are put in the one side and your your bad works in the other side. And if, if your good works are just slightly more than your bad works, you're okay. So you can be 51% good and 49% evil, and you'll make it into paradise or whatever you know Islam believes in, and you'll get your 70 eye-breasted virgins and I don't know what else. You'll, you'll get that. You'll make it. In other words, the 49% of evil that you did is just swept under the rug. Allah doesn't mind it. He won't judge it. But the God of the Bible is not like Allah, the God of Islam. He judges everything. He condones nothing. It's perfect justice. You know, it's, 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 it's not like, you know, the... Um, just think about it in this way. I mean, just rationally, when you think about it, you, you know that justice must work like this. You, you cannot say, okay, but I've done some good things so they cancel out the bad things that, I, that I've done. 
You, you cannot say that. You cannot say, um, you know, yes, um, I've raped and murdered, but I've also um, donated millions to, to charities. So, so, so don't convict me for my rape and murder. You, ca- you cannot say that. It doesn't matter how much you've, you've donated to charities. If you've raped and murdered, you're guilty and you must be punished for it. Uh, and, and, and that's the kind of perfect justice that the God of the Bible uh, delivers. It's delayed justice because it's still in the future. Okay? It's, it's, it's not immediate justice. Um, and then um, it's at the end of time, which means that, that history is not, it's linear and it has a climax. It's not circular. You know, I, I found that especially younger people who grew up with video games struggle a bit with this concept. Because in a video game, when you die, you just go back to your saved game. <laughs> and you reload your saved game. And, and, and it, it's more like reincarnation <laughs> than it is like the Christian worldview of, you know, you have one life, time is linear, you live it, and, and in the end there's, there's judgment day. Um, so judgment day, if you look at this text, it tells us that judgment day is good news all bad news depending on your relationship with God. For some people, Judgment Day is going to be good news. It's going to be relief from trouble. For other people, Judgment Day is going to be bad news. It's going to be trouble. It's going to be punishment. Um, so on Judgment Day, you'll receive either retribution or relief. Um, and, and notice that there are only two groups on Judgment Day. Those who receive rep- retribution, punishment... And those who receive relief, reward. Okay, so why is it necessary? Why is Judgment Day necessary? When we think about it carefully, we realize that Judgment Day is necessary, that life doesn't work without it. Um, here are some reasons why I think Judgment Day is necessary. And I want you to really just switch on your brain and really think through this with me, because I, I really think it'll, it'll help us. If God is just, and remember Paul said it in this text, he says, God is just. Um, you will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. If God is just, he must judge all sins and he can condone nothing. Anyone who, anyone who doesn't judge, isn't just in everything, isn't just at all. And God is just. He's perfectly just. So, so judgment day is necessary because of the nature of God, who God is. He has to express perfect um, justice. Um, only if God judges all sin can he save us from our sin. Think about this. What, what, what many people don't realize is you know, and, and, and you know, it's 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 captured in this idea of oh, I believe in a God of love. He doesn't judge anyone; he just loves everyone. A God like that cannot save. In fact, a God like that isn't really a God of love. How does God save? How does God save from sin? By destroying sin, and destroying everyone who won't let go of their sin. I mean, if you think about it this this way, anyone who refuses to let go of their sin, if God is a God of love, 
He will not allow that person into the new heavens and the new earth to contaminate it and, and the whole cycle of sin and suffering and oppression and cruelty starts all over again. That would not be a loving God. In other words, only a God who judges all sin can save us from our sin. The only hope we have to be saved from the oppression we see around us, from um, the cruelty we see around us, from the destruction we see. I mean, think about it. All the disease, all the destruction, all the, the damage to our hearts that, that we've ever experienced comes from sin. And the only way to save us from that is to destroy sin by judging it. So only if God judges all sin can he save us from our sin. Um, and if there is no judgment day... There's only one law that counts, the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> right? I mean, think about it for a while. Just think about it for a moment. If, if there is no judgment day, then you can do whatever you want to as long as you don't get caught. And how many people are there who live in this world as though there is no judgment day? Think about all the people who um, murder and think they can get away with it. We um, heard a couple of weeks ago that um, the gentleman who works in our garden, Bongani, was attacked. Uh, him and his wife. His wife was shot eight times. She was killed, and he was shot twice through the stomach and once through the leg. He survived, praise God, and he can still take care of his two, two sons. But it was a hit. I mean, if you, if you look at it, pre, apparently earlier in that week, um, the, the youngest son, is, I think he's 11, he said someone came to ask for his mother and, and the guy had a gun. And, and, and when they heard the shots, you know, it was like, oh no, I hope it's not our parents. And, and it was. And, and the impunity with which many, many people just kill because they think they can get away with it. They think the justice system, the police system, is not strong enough to catch them. And to some extent, they're right. But where they are wrong is... The, the, the biggest thing they should be afraid of is not to be caught by the police. The biggest thing they should be afraid of is the fact that God does see them. He sees them killing in cold blood. He sees them being corrupt and stealing money that was intended for the poor. He sees us <laughs> sinning and loving other things more than him. He sees right into our hearts. God sees everything. And if, unless there's a judgment day, unless we live as if there's a judgment day, we will basically just say, as long as I don't get caught, I can do whatever I want to. We won't live with any fear of God before us. And we see how a society looks, a world looks, that lives like that. It's not pretty. It's something you need to be saved from. Um, just think about how a world would be if everyone lived as if there were, if, if there will be a judgment day. Just imagine if everyone lived like they really believed there will be a judgment day and they will have to give an account. The world would be a much better place. Um, the only way to uh, believe in a loving God is to believe in judgment day. I've already explained that. You know, God, If God is, is a God of love, he must judge evil to save those who are the victims of evil from it. That's the only way it can be a loving God. The only way to live in an unjust world 
with any hope is to believe in ultimate justice. Think about it for a moment. I mean, if, 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 if this world is, is so cruel, so full of sin, so unjust, if there's so much oppression and, and, and bad things happening in the world, and there are, then the only way we can have hope is if we believe that at some stage there will be ultimate, final, perfect judgment uh, on the world and, and things will be put right. And, and to take that a step further, the only way to practice nonviolence is to believe in, in judgment day. Um, let me just read you a quote um, from a Croatian uh, Protestant theologian called Miroslav Volf. And he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires belief in a divine vengeance will be po- unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To, to the person who is inclined to dismiss it, uh, it suggests imagining that you are delivering, uh, I suggest imagining that you are delivering uh, a lecture in a, a war zone like Croatia where he comes from. And then he says, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats cut. The topic of the lecture is a Christian attitude towards violence. The the, the thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will be, do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. So what he's saying is, you know, you guys, you Western theologians, you have all nice talk about, yes, nonviolence, and the way to, to practice nonviolence is to believe in a God who... who only loves and who never judges. And he says that you cannot believe in that unless you live in a quiet, safe little suburb where there's no violence. Come and live with me in Croatia. Come and live in this war zone. And then you'll see the only way to practice nonviolence is if you believe that God will ultimately judge and practice violence. Because only then can you say, God is judge, just, He's the judge, I don't have to be. I don't have to retaliate. That's what the Bible constantly says. It says, don't avenge yourself, but not ignore injustice, but make way for the justice of God. Make way for the judgment of God. Um, Judgment Day is the answer to the question, if God, why evil? Right, you've probably heard that question, many of you, and, and maybe some of you are struggling with it. Okay. As long as you're struggling with it, as long as you're actually thinking about it, that's that's good. Um, Epicurus is probably the first and most famous guy to sort of articulate this question, and 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 listen to to what he says, and 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 when you hear it, initially you'll think, wow, this is wow, you know, hectic. This is a good argument. <laughs> okay. But listen to it carefully. He says, if God is willing to prevent evil but not able, he's not almighty. If he is able but not willing, he is not all good. If he is both willing and able, then why is there still evil? If he is neither willing nor able, then why call him God? Sounds like a pretty good argument, right? 
Okay? The answer to that is judgment day. He asked his, his third question is, if he is both willing and able, as the Bible says he is, then why is there still evil? The reason why there is still evil is because God, judgment day is God's perfect delayed judgment and justice. Why does God delay his justice? Because he's not only a just judge, who has made, but he's a merciful judge. You know, I always, uh, you know, laugh at it a little bit when I, when I think about it. You know, people are saying, well, if God is, is, is there, let him judge all evil now and, and deliver us from all evil. If, if God were to judge evil at 11 o'clock, then by 11.01, no one would be left on earth <laughs> to enjoy the justice that God has just established. The problem is, like Solzhenitsyn says, the, the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart. Those demanding that God remove evil and judge evil and destroy evil are actually saying, God, come and destroy me. Because they, we sometimes forget that evil lives inside of us. And that is why Judgment Day is the answer to that Epicurus' question. If God is both willing and evil, why is there still evil? Because God in his mercy is delaying judgment so that he can give us time and grace to repent, to turn away from our sins and to be saved. He's trying to destroy evil without destroying us. That is what God is doing. God is busy destroying evil without destroying us. Because his dilemma is, yes, we deserve to be destroyed because there's evil in all of us. But he loves us. So how is he going to destroy evil without destroying us? By delaying judgment and saving us from our evil. So judgment day is the delay justice so that God can destroy evil without destroying us. If there is a judgment day, then everything matters. If there is no judgment day, then nothing matters. Think about that for a moment. That's heavy. But it's true. The reality is, if there is no judgment day, then nothing matters. Nothing that you do has any significance, any purpose. It doesn't matter at all. You can do whatever you want to. Survival of the fittest, dog eat dog. You can live the way you want to. Might is right. You can oppress, you can abuse, you can say, well, then I might as well just live to enjoy myself. I might just as well use drugs and have casual sex and steal and plunder and just take care of myself because nothing matters. But if there is a judgment day, everything matters. Then the smallest act that you do, if you do it for the glory of God, matters in eternity. And you will actually be rewarded for it. Everything that you suffer matters. And specifically in this context, because Paul was talking to a church who was suffering. Everything that you suffer, and especially suffer for the Lord, and in the name of the Lord, matters very much. Because it shows the world that God is worth suffering for. It's worth serving God when it seems to not be worthwhile to serve God. That is how much we value God. Okay, so Judgment Day is not just a necessary evil, it's a necessary good. Um, and as we see, we'll see Judgment Day is also absolutely just. Judgment 
the judgment of Judgment Day uh, for those who are punished is described as everlasting destruction and blazing fire from heaven, etc. You know, words like that. Words that, you know, the Bible repeats in many different places. So what does that mean? Just think about for a moment what that means. And, and, and here we've got to see, like Paul says in a different place, we've got to see both the, the mercy and the severity of God. Um, what is everlasting destruction? Isn't destruction when you destroy something and then it's destroyed and then you don't have to destroy it anymore? Okay? But what if you had to spend all of eternity destroying it? What would that say about it? It's constantly being destroyed but never fully destroyed. You see, the problem is God created us to be eternal beings. He has put eternity in our hearts. Human beings will exist forever. And they will either exist under the joy of God's presence or under the judgment of his absence. And that's what that says. Um, For eternity, you, you will not stop existing. But if you choose destruction, you will experience that destruction forever. Eternal destruction. It'll never stop. And it'll be like constantly being burned with fire but never being consumed. That's why the fire metaphor is used so often when talking about judgment. Jesus uses it. Many other people in the, in the Bible use it. Many other writers in the Bible use it. Um, but then we ask, I mean, but isn't that a bit harsh? Isn't that a bit severe? Shouldn't the punishment fit the crime? But it does. That punishment does fit the crime. The, the only reason we think it's too severe is because we underestimate how evil our sin is. Now, think about this. Those who are punished will get exactly what they want. It says their punishment will be to be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in, in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, okay, thy will be done. And all that are in hell choose it. Without the, the, that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and const, constantly desires joy will ever miss it. In other words, on judgment day, we will get exactly what we cho- choose. Now, I, I wanted to show you that people who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, the invitation to choose God and to have relationship with Him, to be loved by Him. People who constantly choose to reject Him and to not love Him. In the end, God will say to them, okay, fine, your will be done. I'll give you exactly what you ask. You don't want my presence? I'll remove it from you. And and this also corrects sort of a a misunderstanding that we have about um, Judgment Day, that on Judgment Day there will be people sort of crying out and saying, please, you know, Give me a second chance. Give me another chance. Have mercy on me. I, I, I didn't know. No. There will be no one asking to be let into the presence of God. Because that's what, what in the end the judgment is. It's to be shut out from the presence of God. And, and the, the problem is when God gives people exactly what they want, they'll realize it's exactly what they didn't need. <laughs> Because God, how does how is everything held together in the universe? 
through the presence of God and through the word of his power, his mighty power that it speaks of there. And when God removes that from people, they will experience everlasting destruction. They will be constantly destroyed without being, but they'll continue to exist forever. It'll be terrible. It's the most terrible existence. And they don't know that they're wishing for it now. And that's why we should pray for them. Because we were them. We were them. Before God saved us. That was us. We didn't want God's presence. But to those who do obey the gospel, who do know God and obey the gospel, it says that Jesus comes on that day. This is the relief, the reward part of Judgment Day. To be glorified in his holy people. And to be marveled at by all who have believed. To be Not to be glorified among his holy people, but to be glorified in them. In other words, those who have already let God in by judgment day will just receive more of what they've let in. Those who have rejected God on judgment day, I mean, God will just remove himself completely from them. In other words, judgment day is just going to be an intensification of what you've already chosen. Now think of it the, the, about this, and this is where the gospel comes in. <clears throat> if the ultimate judgment of God is to be shut out from his presence, which leads to eternal destruction, everyone who has ever and who will ever experience that, experience that because they choose it, because they've rejected God. They don't want God's presence, with one notable exception. The man who hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the only one who chose for God, but yet was forsaken by God. He's the only one who had not forsaken God, but had God forsake him, so that God would never have to forsake us. In other words, the gospel is that judgment day came to Jesus a few thousand years early before it comes to everyone else, so that God can destroy evil without having to destroy us. Can you see what God has done for you? Can you see what Jesus has done for you on the cross? He suffered being forsaken by God, being shut out from the presence of God, the the pain of eternal destruction, and even rejection by the Father, being forsaken by the Father. He suffered what we deserved, So that we could receive what he deserved. And so that God's justice can be fulfilled. So that this text can say God is just. Because that sin that you and I committed, us who believe in in Christ, it's been punished. Not in us, but in Christ. Can you see how judgment day is, how just it is? How everyone receives what they what they deserve. Now, just in closing, sorry, I have taken a bit too long, forgive me, but I'm going to skip a few things and just say, okay, how is this going to help us to pray better? In very short, how would you pray differently if you prayed from from the perspective of Judgment Day? A Judgment Day perspective will help you firstly pray for what really matters. Because if you see, if you look at your world through the lens of Judgment Day, you'll be able to determine what really matters. Not just what's urgent, but what's really important. What's going to last for eternity. And you'll pray for what really matters. Secondly, you'll pray with more urgency. (laughs) Because you'll realize the things that you're praying for really matter. 
They the, the, the stakes are high. They're, they're the highest stakes possible. They're eternal stakes. They're life and death stakes. Thirdly, uh, you can pray for forgiveness for ourselves. We can ask for forgiveness because we understand judgment and that Jesus experienced judgment day for us. So our sins can be forgiven even though we don't, we've done nothing to deserve it. Okay? But also we can give forgiveness from us. We can forgive other people because we know God is just. He's the judge. I don't have to judge people. I don't have to hold a grudge and, and, and be bitter towards people. I can forgive them because perfect justice will come. And then finally, we can pray with perseverance. We can pray without giving up because we see where we're going. Um, give, me, give me two more minutes. I just want to end off with a story relating to that point. There's a, a, a lady in 1952 called Florence Chadwick. She was um, the first woman to swim the, the, the um, English um, Channel both ways, and she swam a few other things. And, and there's this island, I think Catalina or something, off the Californian coast. It's, it's, it's about just over 40 kilometers, I think almost 42 kilometers from the coast. And, and she wanted to become the first woman to swim that in 1952. And, and as she, she trained, obviously, very hard. And as she was going, there was a boat next to her. A trainer was on the boat. They may not touch her because she has to, on her own strength, swim that. Um, it was very misty. And it was a big, a, a thick fog. And she couldn't see the coast. And she just kept swimming, swimming, hour after hour. And after a couple of hours, she wanted to give up. And the coach said, no, you've got this. You can do this. Keep going. Don't stop. And she went on. And then after about 15 hours, she just stopped and said, I... I can't anymore. And eventually, she just stopped swimming. And they, they had to, you know, coach tried to encourage her, but she didn't want to listen. So she just put, put, put her in the boat. And as they were driving to the coast, she realized she was less than a kilometer away from the coast. And she said afterwards in a, in a news interview, she said, I don't want to make excuses for myself, but if I had only seen the coastline, I would have made it. If I'd only seen my destination... I would have been able to persevere. And she proved that two months later, she actually did, on a clear day when she could see the coastline, she did actually swim those 42 kilometers, as long as a marathon. And in fact, I, I think she, she did it twice um, after that. You also, I also, we, we won't be able to persevere unless we can see the coastline, unless we can see our destination. We've got to live with that destination in mind. We've got to pray with that destination in mind. Let's stand. <clears throat> the more we look forward to Judgment Day, the better we pray. The more we keep our eyes on Judgment Day, the better we pray. Amen. And I want to encourage you to do this. Not only will you pray better if you have judgment day in mind, you'll live better. You'll live better. So I just want you to close your eyes. If you, if you know you're on the, on the right side of judgment day because you know God and you've, you obey the gospel, and I like that phrase, it's not just believe the gospel, it's obey the gospel and always live according to it which is what we always say, live the gospel love the people, obey the spirit you know? 
The gospel is something to be obeyed, something to be lived out. Then, um, then I want you to thank God. Thank Him for Judgment Day and thank Him that Judgment Day came to Jesus early on our behalf. Thank Him that, that He experienced Judgment Day on our behalf, that He took our Judgment Day upon Himself. Just in your own words, just thank Him. How can we not marvel at Him if He has done that for us? If you, if you know you're on the wrong side of judgment day because you don't know God and you don't obey the gospel, then I also have good news for you. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus did experience judgment day on the cross. Roughly 2,000 years ago, a little bit less than 2,000 years ago, so that you won't have to pay the penalty on judgment day. So that you don't have to fear judgment day. So that you don't have to twist your view of God to say, Oh, no, I, 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 I'm desperate. I have to believe in a God that doesn't judge because I know I'm going to be on the wrong side of justice. But where you can say, Okay, God, I can accept you as a God of justice because I know that even in your justice, you poured out your justice on Jesus so that I can receive mercy. That's the good news. It's not good advice about what you must do to save yourself. It's good news about what Jesus did to save you. And if you believe that, then you will also know God, obey the gospel, and you'll be able to look forward to judgment day. Yes, Lord God, we just come before you in Jesus' name, and we pray, Lord God, that you'll teach us to live from a judgment day perspective to pray from a judgment day perspective and to really to pray as though you really answer prayers because we know that you do we realize we don't always live that way we don't always live as though that is true but we know it is true and we pray that you'll help us to believe it to such extent that we can live as if it's true Lord and I just come Lord God and and pray, Lord, for every single person here in Jesus' name. They'll experience your grace right now. To just, Lord, we just pray for, for your grace to get our thinking right. We want to learn to pray like Paul. But we realize that we also need to learn to think like Paul. Help us. Help us to think that way in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.